very honored just to be with you this morning, just to be able to celebrate Jesus Christ, which is what we do every day. You know, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, and it says that if we as Christians are living in this life with hope in a Jesus who's still dead, then we are, of all men, most miserable. <clears throat> but now Christ is risen from the dead. And because Jesus is alive, then we are, of all men, most happy. You know, um, those of us that have become Christians and given our lives to Jesus Christ, we didn't do it by some power of our own. This was done by the power of God. And it is the power of God that has saved us and changed us. We're not good people. I'm in this altar worshiping God because I am so mindful of how terrible I am. Now, you don't know me, so you might think, oh, he's a preacher. He's just a good guy, but, it, but he's not. He's a horrible person, and I need salvation. I need redemption. I need the ability to be forgiven of my sins. And God has found a way through the offering of his own son to give me redemption. And that through Jesus, God could put my sins away. And so that's why I like to sing and praise God and rejoice in God because I'm free. Those of us that have given our hearts to Jesus and we have been, as the Bible describes it, born again. We lived a life just like people who were not born again. We lived a life just like a lot of people who are religious. And they find themselves in a lot of turmoil and a lot of problems, a lot of addictions in their life, a lot of defeat in their life, family problems, life problems, all sorts of things. But we came and we gave our lives to Jesus Christ and we have a choice. And that choice is we could live like somebody that doesn't know God or we can live as people who get to walk with God. And knowing Jesus Christ is infinitely better than anything else we've ever known in life. And, that, and that's the thing, you're not, when you're born, even if you're born and you're brought up in the church, it doesn't mean that you're born as a Christian. And that even if you're brought up in the church, you're brought up in religion, you're not born again, doesn't mean you have a relationship with God. There comes a moment in a person's life when they're convicted of sin and they are faced with one of two alternatives, to be right with God through some merit of God are to be guilty before God. And to be guilty before God is to be judged by God forever. But to be made right with God can only occur through the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why the blood is so important that we've been singing about. The Bible says that the life is in the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so Jesus Christ literally died on a cross and shed His blood... So that through his blood, we could be forgiven and we could be set free. And so we know the same life as those that don't know the Lord. Because at many times in points in our life, some of us might have been young. Others of us might have been relatively older in life. Some of you are in here. You didn't get saved till you were 50 or 60 years old. And you lived a life just doing your own thing and living the way you wanted to live. But when you met Jesus Christ, you found what you had been looking for your whole life. Not a religion, not Christianity, but a person. The person of Jesus Christ, the one that we are actually all created for. 
And he loves us. We find that he loves us and he wants to redeem us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to heal us. He wants to deliver us from the oppressions of this life. But even more than that, not in the context of a temporal world, but more in the context of a, of a, of a, of a life that is going to go on without end, an eternal life. He wants to redeem us from the wrath of God. And I think that is absolutely beautiful. You know, the Bible tells us, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, that they, there are basically two men. And that is the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam that God created in the garden from the dirt, and God breathed into him and he became a living soul. The Bible says he is the earthly man. And so that earthly man was first, and he came into this world. God did not make him sin. God gave him every provision to live a good and righteous life before the Lord. But God gave him that opportunity. If you don't want me, then you can choose this path. And that was the path of disobedience. Well, man chose that path. And he chose the path to do it his own way and to be his own God. That, that seed of Adam from that garden is still in men today. The Apostle Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about that we change the image of the uncorruptible God into an image like man or beast. We wanted to change his truth into a lie. We wanted a God that we could manage. We wanted a God that existed for me, not a God that I existed for. I wanted something that I could manipulate and control for my own well-being. So I don't like to retain this God of the Bible in my mind, but I want to create my own God. And men live their lives that way. I'm all right with God. Everything's fine with me and the Lord. Even though in the Word of God, there are many contradictions between that life and God. And God is very... That's why Jesus died. All types of things like that. And so man still lives his own way. He has fashioned his own God in his mind. And as long as man can create his own God, then for the most part, that man is going to feel like he is okay with God because he's created his own God in his mind. You can call that God Jesus. You can call that God Muhammad. You can call that God anything, but he's the God you've created. But if we come directed upon the God of this book and the God of creation, then we find this God is holy, and this God is eternal, and this God is righteous, and this God is gracious, and, and this God is just. And he has revealed himself to us through the person of his Son. And Jesus is the second Adam, and he's from heaven. And when Jesus came into the earth, he chose his Father. He did not choose to rebel against his Father, but he chose to honor his Father, and he chose to walk after his Father. And just as our first father in the garden sinned against God, and that brought death into all of his children, which is me and you. Look in the mirror. You're getting older. You have not defied death. You have not defied its power. It is working in you. You can see it. The signs are there. The hair loss is there. The wrinkles are there. The gray is there. You're losing teeth. It's all there. Disease is there. I mean, let's just wake up to this reality. I'm not defying what God said would come to those that rebelled against him, and that is death. And so that has been passed on just simply because we've been born and we're humans. And that's all that it took 
And so the Bible says that we need to be born again. And being born again is a spiritual thing. It's not like the flesh birth where we became little infants in this world. But it is a spiritual birth where we surrender our lives to God. We, we turn from the life that we've been living, serving the God that we created, to humble ourselves before the infinite God as revealed to us through the scriptures, through the prophets, and through Jesus Christ. And we, we humble ourselves to him because he's gracious. And guess what? He wants to forgive us. He doesn't want to hold it against us. He doesn't want to hold our sins against us. He doesn't want to judge us. He doesn't want us to die. He wants to give us life. And so we turn over to him our lives in repentance. And through a miracle of God, a new birth occurs. And now the life of Jesus is actually inside of us, just like the life of your father Adam was inside of you, causing death in you. Now the life of Jesus, God's son, is in you, causing life in you. And it's just the miracle of God, and it's what he does. But in order for Jesus to do this, as, as God prophesied in the Garden of Eden, after the man and the woman had sinned against God, God said, in regards to the serpent, who was Satan in that garden, God said, of the seed of the woman, to the serpent you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And that event occurred 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, when Jesus Christ was nailed to a Roman cross, and for the most part in that event, the heel of Jesus was bruised. He was not conquered. He was not defeated. He was actually the victor. But he was wounded. And he was suffering on that cross. And he did bear our sins on that cross. But in the cross, Jesus Christ would also crush the serpent's head. And in the crushing of the serpent's head... Jesus Christ would be able to bring a call out to all humanity, whosoever will now can come. You can come and you can be free and you can live and you don't ever have to face the wrath of God ever again. You're forgiven. Now that is for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross, he suffered an horrific death. As the sacrifice and the substitution for all mankind. But not only was he a mere substitution in death. But through the mystery of God. The Lord also joined every one of us to him in his death. So that we could have a true circumcision from the body of sin. That was in rebellion against God. And when Jesus Christ was put into the grave. Three days later he came up. From the grave. In life. In victorious life. Hallelujah. And he walked among men. People saw him. His apostles saw him. He appeared at one time to 500 men at once. And they saw him. The Romans had to understand and agree that his tomb was empty. No one was arrested. No one was put in prison for it. No one was executed because of somebody stealing the body of Jesus Christ, which would have happened if that were the case. But Jesus rose from the dead by the power of God, and he lives and ever lives, and he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God. 
He is King of kings and he is Lord of lords. Whatever you've done with Jesus, I will promise you this one thing. Whatever you've done with him up to this point in your life, there will be a day when everyone kneels to him and confesses that he is Lord to the glory of God. There's a passage in the Bible that says you have one of two options. One option is, is that you refuse to kneel to Jesus and this rock falls on you and crushes you. Or you can fall upon this rock and be broken. That brokenness is actually a healing. It is actually a freedom. And you can become whole from that. And so your response to Jesus Christ right now in this life is the only thing that affects your eternity. Not your goodness, not your church attendance, not your monetary giving, not your prayers, not your devotions, not your disciplines, not how many sacrifices you make to try to cover up for the mistakes that you've made. The only thing that can affect your life and your eternity is what you believe about Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, you have to believe that or not. If no man can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ, then you have to ask yourself a question How am I trying to be right with God? And every one of you has an answer to that. You're trying in yourself. You're trying in your own logic. You're trying in your own wisdom. You're trying in your own goodness. You're trying in your lineage. You're trying in your uprightness. You're trying in your morality. You're trying in your sacrifices. You're trying in some way. Or you are believing in Jesus Christ and you are trusting in him to save you and to give you a new life. It's, it's one of the two ways. And good people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Sinners go to heaven who have repented and asked the Lord to come into their life. And God changes them and they become saints. Our dear friend Daryl Turner, who's coming here in May to speak to us, just returned from Israel. Sent me a picture. I sent it to our office staff today. And it was a picture of the empty tomb in Israel. It's still empty. Praise God. Now we know that. We know that. But it's just wonderful that it is still empty. But let me tell you that the true sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a supernatural church. It's a supernatural people. That is the true sign of the resurrection of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit has come down to earth and he has made his home inside of people who have been born again. And they become his temple and his house and the Holy Spirit works through them. When I think about this God making a promise to the fallen man in the Garden of Eden that I have seen your transgression and your rebellion. And I have a desire to redeem you from this rebellion. I have a desire to give you life and not death. And for that to happen, I must come and give my life for you. That God, willingly to do that, speaks to me of great mercies and great compassion. That God indeed loves us and he indeed loves you. 
And I wanted to talk to you for just a few minutes out of 2 Corinthians 1 and John 11. And I just encourage you to turn there and read it with me, if you will. The first one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Or I could in verse 2. It says, Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful that grace and peace are the things that God wants to give us. Isn't that great? Not wrath and judgment. Not condemnation and abuse. Praise God. But grace and peace. How many of you want grace and peace from God? You know? And he says, this is from the Lord Jesus. And it says, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He is the originator of mercy. All mercy comes out of him. Jesus said of the devil, he is the father of lies. And all lies originate from this satanic spirit. But God is the father of mercies, and all compassion originates from God. We are created in the image of God, and to a measure, all of us as humans have a capacity to show compassion. We have a capacity to extend mercy. But we only have that because it's been given to us by God. He is the true mercy. He is the true giver of mercy, the producer of mercy. He is the father of it, and I love this. He is the God of all comfort. And and this is to me so beautiful. Verse 4 says, Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now, I will say to you that there's a lot of areas in life that I need God's comfort. I need Him in every area. I need God to help me in every situation that I find myself in. People are miserable and they're messed up. I mean, just the psychiatric business in the United States of America is a multi-billion dollar business with drugs and the treatment of depression, the treatment of anxiety, and the treatment of stress. And most people who do not go to the psychiatric help for their depression and stress and anxiety, often turn to other means, such as alcohol or drug addiction or sexual relationships or whatever it might be. Man is trying to deal with the fact that he is not right and he is messed up. But God states that he is the God of all comfort and he comforts us in all of our tribulation And in all of our affliction. So I just want to talk to you about that for just a few moments. And one of the things that I think about is this. What an incredible statement to make. What an incredible statement for God to make. That I am the God of all comfort. Because we live in a world today that's challenging this. It's challenging God. There are, quote, smart people. That have laid the accusation at the feet of the church. And at the feet of God, for that matter. That if God is good, then why is there evil in the world? If God is good, why is there problems? If God is good, why is there sickness? I mean, let's just cut to the chase. Why does God even have to be a God who comforts those who suffer? If he's God, why let anybody suffer? Why even let it happen? And so people begin to try to form their opinions about God based upon experiences in life. 
based upon tragedies in life, based upon problems in life. And we take through these problems that we've gone through and experience, and based upon these experiences, we begin to define what a good God should do and what a good God, how he should act and how he should behave. And if God loves me, then this is what love is, and God should love me this way. And like Romans chapter 1, we begin to create our own God. The God of our imagination, the God of what we think a God ought to be. And so in America and in Western Europe, this is laid at the feet of God all the time. How can he be good when people are suffering? How can he be good when there are people dealing with cancer? Even his own people, even God's own children, even those that have put their faith in God are going through hardships in life. But I want you to understand there's no controversy between that and a good God. Because you can't take away from the fact that though God is good, he is just. And because man rebelled against God, it was the justice of God that had to enact a probation period or a judgment period upon this planet. Because of man's rebellion. It's not because of God's inerrant badness. It's not because God is not good that men suffer. It's because men have rebelled against God that they suffer. And God didn't have to do anything to rescue the rebel man. But because God loves the man and because God has mercy upon the man, God desires to rescue the man from his own rebellion. And God desires to give the man a future and a hope and a kingdom where there is no suffering and there is no death and there is no sickness and there is no pain. So what would you rather? Would you rather 70, 80, 90 years living in a bubble where there's no problems and no pain and no storms in life? Or would you rather living in eternity with a God that is truthful and just and you can know that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever? And the God who promised judgment is the God who promises glory. And the God who promised suffering is the God who promised deliverance from it. And the God who promised that there would be sickness is the God who promised that there would be healing. And he told us, praise God, he told us that the suffering is temporary and the sickness is temporary and the tribulations are temporary, but the glory is eternal. So so what would we rather have? What would we rather have? We, We tend to make this temporary life of suffering our eternal state of being. So I just say, don't misjudge God. But, but just kind of go in the way of the modern thoughts and the modern intelligence of people today who want to lay accusations at God's feet and want to accuse God of not being good and God not being love and maybe coming to the next conclusion after that that there really isn't a God after all. Or if there is a God, he has created this and now he's distant and he's separated from it and He's really not very aware of what goes on here. That's the agnostic belief. And then there are those that are atheists and just say there is no God. And everything is science and so forth. And and let's just go that route. Say that there is no God. You still suffer. And you still have pain. And you still have tribulation. But now you have no comfort. Now you have no hope. You have a miserable life and you die. And you can only hope that you go into a non-existent state. 
where you experience nothing beyond that. No life, no death, no pain, no pleasure. There's nothing beyond life. And, and so that is it. So there's no justice. And those that molested you are going to get away with it. And those that did horrific crimes upon humanity, they're going to get away with it because there's no God to judge them. And that is, that, that is a more ridiculous idea than the idea of God being just and God also being good. So I want to go to John chapter 11, and I just want you to see the way God comforts. And I just pray that you would open up your heart for this, if you would. I pray that you're with me. I laid this out in an analogy in the very beginning, and I'll come back to it. But in John 11, there are four people or three people here that Jesus has a great relationship with. And this is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the Bible says that Jesus loved them. And if if you're familiar with the story, then just bear with me. If you're not familiar with the story, I'll give it to you very quickly. But Lazarus gets sick. Now, Jesus isn't very far away. He's he's just, uh, just a few miles from where Lazarus is. And so they send a messenger to Jesus, and they said, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. Would you come heal him? Now, they watched Jesus heal people. Jesus slept in their house. Jesus ate in their house. They supported his ministry. They financially backed the things that Jesus was doing. And so when Lazarus got sick, of course, Jesus is going to come. I mean, he went, he healed strangers, right? And so certainly Jesus is going to come and heal Lazarus, you know, and take care of him. So when they sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick, Jesus intentionally remained where he was. And he didn't go to him. Now get this. Lazarus died. Had to be painful. I can't imagine any death, especially in those days when they don't have painkillers and anesthetics and things of that nature. Can't imagine somebody dying from an illness where it's, where it's pleasant. And so it must have been a painful death, and Jesus lets Lazarus go through it. And not only that, not only did Lazarus die, they had the wake and the funeral, and Jesus didn't go. Now, a lot of us would cut our funds off. And we would rent his room out to somebody else. Because I thought he loved me, but he doesn't. I thought he cared, but he doesn't care. I mean, honestly, right? If you have a friend that's sick and that person is, and you have the ability, you have the power to heal them and, and, you, and you love them and they, and they say, hey, you know, hey, this person that you love is sick and you've got the ability and the power to come heal them, come heal Well, wouldn't love get up and go heal them? If you get to define love, it would. But who are you to define love? Look at the way we treat each other. Who am I to define love? Look at the way we treat. We killed God. We killed God. We killed the only man that walked among us that was sinless and perfect. And we're going to define love? Please. So Jesus stays where he is. and said, well, this is going to really hurt their faith. This is going to make them struggle to believe, like a lot of Christians, like us, that go through things in life and we want God's answer. 
And he doesn't give it to us when we want it or the way that we want it. And we're saying, oh, this is really hurting my faith. And so when you come into this story, Jesus realizes Lazarus is dead. And he says, now it's time to go. He's dead. He's, he's, by the time Jesus gets there, he's in the grave for four days, right? So the wake and the funeral's over. And people are still there mourning. Jesus wasn't even there for that. And he says in verse 15, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Let us go to him. And so I want you to understand, please listen to me. And I want to talk to you about the God of comfort. I want, and just listen to me. And, and, and just I pray with all of my heart you will grasp this because there's an attack against God in our culture today. And Christians are suffering from it. God is the God of all comfort. But you can't put God on your terms. And you cannot be the one who defines how he's supposed to do it. But the fact is, he will do it. And you have to have a heart that is open and receptive when he's ready to do it. And he will do it. And so Jesus says this to the disciples. Lazarus is dead. Let's go to him. And listen to what he said. I'm glad for your sakes I didn't go earlier. Why? Why was he glad? So you might believe. Was Jesus doing anything to hurt their faith? No. Everything Jesus doing was a strategy to build their faith. To increase their faith. And some of you as Christians and maybe some of you even as unbelievers, your faith has grown weak because of the suffering and the trial that you're in. And you're wondering what God is doing. And God is saying, listen. There is nothing I would ever do in your life to weaken your faith. I am the author and the finisher of your faith. I start it and I finish it. And everything I'm doing in the in-between time is to get you to the perfection of faith. There's nothing I'm doing to weaken your faith. The devil will. Your intelligence will. Circumstances will. That's why the just shall live by faith. Not by sight and not by feeling. But by what you know to be true of God. And so God is doing something in our life for the purpose of, I want you to believe. And so you're going to have to walk through some trials with Jesus. You're going to have to go through some things with him that you don't understand and don't make sense to you. But if you walk with God, they're going to come forth and you're going to have a stronger faith. You're going to have a stronger life. I was reading some of the things that Shannon Cannon has put out. Just recently, it's, it's beautiful, Shannon, what you're, what you're sharing and what you're saying. She's dealing with cancer. And, I, and we're believing God to heal her. We've gotten some good reports. But it's beautiful what you've written because she said, I've just never, or there's a time right now in your life where you're so close to God. It's like God is holding her together. Not in a theory, but in a reality. And she says, this is a precious time. And when I read that, I just sat back for a moment and I thought, how beautiful of God to give us temporary sickness for eternal capacity of friendship with God. And I just, you know, and I think only a believer could say something like that, right? Most people, that's ridiculous, you know, but they'll understand when eternity gets here. But how beautiful of God to give us temporary pain 
for an eternal enlargement of being able to know and relate to God as a father and a son, as a husband and a wife would. And I just think that's beautiful of God to be able to do those things. And so though I don't understand, I know this, God's building my faith, he's not destroying it. God, I don't know what's going on right here. I don't like this. This does not feel good. I am not happy with this at all. But I know that you're not doing it to destroy my faith. And if I stay close to you, I'm going to see your glory. And I'm going to see it. And so Jesus goes. Jesus didn't send the the apostles. He went himself. When God comforts you, he comes himself. He doesn't send an angel to do it. He doesn't send a preacher to do it because they can't. He comes himself. And he's going to make himself real and known to you. And then in John chapter 11, verse 33, it says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. That word troubled means to be agitated, stirred to action. This is what the the Greek says. He was so deeply moved, so visibly shaken that the people said, behold, how he loved him. And that's what they were saying when they watched how troubled and the groaning. Jesus is literally groaning of what is going on. So Mary and Martha come out to meet Jesus. And you all know the story that if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. He would have been here. And Jesus is I'm, I'm just cut to this. Jesus just basically is dealing with the situation. You believe I can heal the sick, but you have trouble believing I can raise the dead. So I intentionally waited for him to be dead for four days because you're going to see the resurrection today. And Jesus made one of the most bold statements that a human being could ever make when he said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that believes in me that is not dead, he shall never die. What a statement to make. Can he back it up? Yeah, he went to the grave of Lazarus. And he said, come out. And Lazarus did. There's historical witnesses of this in the Roman Empire. There's historical witnesses of this in the Jewish nation. Not just among Christians. There's historical witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And how Lazarus went on a campaign testifying how he was dead for four days. And Jesus Christ brought him back to death. So can Jesus back it up? Is there validity in the statement that he's the resurrection and the life? You better believe it. He he interrupted a funeral in Nain and raised a boy out of his coffin while they were going the way to bury him. This is the power of Jesus Christ. And then in his own power, he raises himself from the dead after three days in the grave. And so Jesus groans in his spirit when he sees this. I want to say this to you. In the comfort of God, he hates what the devil has done to you. He hates what life has done to you. He hates it. We don't fight against flesh and blood. Our our battle is not with humans. It's with principalities and powers of darkness. They may operate through people. But behind it all is Satan. And Jesus hates the molestation. He hates the abuse. He hates the crime. He hates the murder. He hates the betrayal. He hates the offenses that you've gone through. He hates the way that you've been mocked. He hates the shame that you have to wear. He hates it. He groans in himself. And he wants to do something about it. This is the God of comfort. Who knows how to comfort us in every situation. 
that we are troubled with. So Jesus says to Mary and Martha, take me to him. And they say he's been dead for four days. Take me to him. And this is what I think is so beautiful. Because this is really where God is able to comfort you. But the question is, will you let him? So God comes to you and he sees you where you are. And he understands what you've been through. And he understands how it happens. And he understands the controversy that you have with him, God. God, if you're God, why did you let this happen to me? It's very real and it's very painful and God gets it. And God's going to come to you and when God comes to you, he's going to say this to you at some point. Take me to him. Take me to the abuse. Take me to the betrayal. Take me to the pain. Take me to the forsaking. Take me to the brokenness. Take me to your death. Take me to your wounds. Take me to your sickness. And I'll be honest, a lot of people say, oh no. I've got that buried away in a nice little tomb and I've learned how to live with the death of it. And God's like, all right, I was here to comfort you. But you didn't want to see the glory. If you want to see the glory, take me to it. Take me to it. Take me to that thing you've buried That you're trying to live without, but you know you can't because that burial site's right there on your home property. And every time you walk out your house, you see the gravestone of failure. Take me to it. And let me transform that failure to success and glory for God's sake. Let me do that. And so a moment ago I said, suppose there's not a God. Suppose there's not. It doesn't take suffering away. Doesn't take pain away. Doesn't take agony away. It just makes it more miserable. But stay with me for just a moment. Suppose there is a God. Suppose there is. Is there any evidence? Is there any evidence in history that could give us a substantial testimony that there is a God who's good? Is there any evidence? Let's suppose there is a God. Is there any evidence in history that would testify to the fact that there is a God who really loves us? And for us, we have to go back to the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing unique about the fact that Jesus died. What's unique is the Jesus who died. Because on that Roman cross 2,000 years ago, God was on it. What is God doing on a cross? And what he's doing on a cross is he is stating to us that I am not removed from your pain. I've actually become a part of it. And beloved, there is evidence that there's a God who's good and there's a God who loves us and a God who can do something about us and he can help us. And his help is going to be astounding and amazing in our life as we go through the suffering, but as we walk into glory because of the resurrection of Jesus, he's testifying to us life is not down here. 
life is with my Father. And I came to save you, not to keep you out of hell. I came to save you, to bring you to my Father. To adopt you into His family. To marry you. Because Jesus is the groom. And you are the bride. Hallelujah. There's a story about a mother and her daughter. And I'm going to close with this. I just want you to listen. If you can, be still. The story of the mother and her daughter. The mother's name is Maria and her daughter's name is Christina. And they lived in Brazil. They lived in a very small, poor village. Just really on the outskirts of the village. Their home was very simple. It was a one-room hut. Had a hard dirt floor. They did the best they could to make it a home. Faded picture of a family member. A wooden cross on the wall. Two pallets on each side of the room where they would sleep. That was it. Very simple. When Christina was born, it wasn't long after that that her daddy died. And Maria was left to raise Christina all by herself. True story. She was left to raise Christina all by herself. And so she began to pick up jobs cleaning. She cleaned as much as she could to make as much money as she could. And they were able to live. They were able to buy food. They were able to buy clothing and so forth. They didn't have any of the conveniences that we would have. But Christina grew so beautiful. And they would tell us that she could go into a room and light it up. Her personality was so large. Her beauty was so great. But she would talk to her mom all the time. I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to move to the city. I can't wait to be where there's life and there's excitement. I just can't wait, Mom. I can't wait. And so eventually Christina would grow up and she was 15 and then she was 16 years old. And one morning, Maria got up and Christina's bed was empty. She knew. She knew exactly what happened. She knew that her daughter had left in the night and went to Rio de Janeiro. Went to this big city in Brazil. And she knew immediately that her daughter now was going to be in so much trouble because the city was going to run her over. There was no way that she could survive. There was no way that she would be able to get a job and she would be able to hold it. She would have to do things that a mother would never even want to think about her baby girl doing. So Maria did all that she could. She got as much money as she could collect and she put it in her purse and she immediately went to the bus station and as she was on the way to the bus station, she stopped at a store. She went into one of those photo booths and she took as many pictures of herself as she could possibly take. She took hundreds, if not thousand pictures. And while she sat on the bus on the way to Rio, she would begin to write on the back of those pictures. And she got to the city and she looked all over for her daughter, knowing that it would be impossible for her to find her. So she took these little selfie photographs of herself and she went to hotels that prostitutes would frequent. She went to barrooms and nightclubs and dance clubs. And she took a picture of herself, just a little Photoshop picture, and she would paste it on mirrors. She would pin it onto bulletin boards in hotel lobbies. 
She would put it in bus stations and she would put it wherever prostitutes would go, wherever the drugs was happening. That's where she would put it. And it was just her face, Maria's face. And she ran out of money and she ran out of pictures. And brokenhearted, she went home. Never found her girl, but hoping and praying that one day her girl would maybe pass where her picture was. And she'd notice her mama and stop. Weeks went by. And Christina was coming down the stairs of a hotel into the lobby of the hotel. And she has lost all life in her eyes and in her face. She's no longer happy and joyful. She's defiled. She has given herself to anybody who would come and offer her money. And she begins to walk out of the hotel and she notices in the corner of her eye a picture and she looks at it and it was her mom. This little picture of her mom. And she stopped and she approached that picture and her eyes started to burn. Her throat tightened up and she said, what is my mother's picture doing here? This is so strange. So she drew near to the bulletin board and she took her mom's picture off of it and she just looked at it and she turned it over and it said this, Christina, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Come home, please. And she did. Maybe if we were walking by Jerusalem, we saw a man on a cross, and we, what is God doing on a cross? What is God hanging on a cross for? What what is God being punished for? And we draw near, and we hear him say, whatever you've become. Whatever you've done, come home, please. That's why he died. And that's why the cross is empty. That's why the grave is empty. Because he lives to bring you home. And if that's not comfort, beloved, you're just looking for something that is perverted from the greatest love could ever be extended to you. And I want you right now to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And I want to pray for you. And listen to me carefully. I just want to pray. Some of you here today, you need to come home. Please be still. Be still. And I just want to give an invitation behalf of the Father who put His Son on a cross to be able to say to us whatever you've done whatever you've become come home please and maybe there's somebody here this morning whose heart would say back to God I want to come home. Life has run me over. 
hurt. I'm wounded. I've lost so much, I don't even know how to begin to rebuild it. Praise God, you don't have to figure it out. You just have to say to the Father, I will go home. And like the prodigal son, the Father will come to meet you. I don't know how he does it, but he does. He does it. He meets you. He forgives you. He cleans you. He washes you. He restores you. He receives you. The Father will not reject anyone who turns to Him. He will not. But the God of all comfort proved to us that He's willing and able. He defeated our greatest fear, death. That means He can defeat anything that you're battling in your life. The abuse, the rage, the anger, the betrayal, pain, sickness, the confusion, He beat it all. And right now, I just want to invite you to pray with me. And if you pray this in your heart, you mean this in your heart, I believe God hears it. And I believe God responds to you. So I invite you to pray this with me if you would like to come home to God. Father, I turn to you this morning. I cannot deny that you gave your son for me. I cannot deny the pain that I've had in life or the confusion. And I don't understand why things happen the way they do. So many times I held you to blame for that. But I don't understand. And this morning, I let that go because you have testified to me that you love me. You came for me. So I can come home. I want to be yours. I turn from my sin, which is which is my way of doing things. And I trust you. I trust you to save me. I trust you to get me home. I want to be born of the Spirit of God. I am desperate for the life of Jesus Christ to be in me. I have no hope in you. And I have feared that you would even receive me. But this morning, I know you will. So I surrender. And I yield to you, Father. And I thank you for loving me. And I believe if you prayed that with me or something similar to that, and you meant it in your heart that God hears you. 
And in that moment of time, your destiny's been changed from wrath to forgiveness. And now I just ask you to live by faith through the grace of God to walk with Jesus. I want you to stand with me around this room. And I want us to rejoice in a God that's alive and in a God of comfort and a God that loves us. And I want to encourage you, there are those of you here this morning that are suffering from abuse and pain in life, confusion in life. And you would say your faith is weakened, but you know now God's not doing anything to weaken your faith. Perhaps you just need to come and ask the Lord to help you. Come out of your pity. Come out of your blame. Jesus commanded Mary to come out of the house and come to him. He was not going into that house of self-pity and blame. When she came out there, she was healed and Lazarus was raised. And there's some of us, we need to bring Jesus to that pain in our life we've tried to bury. Because it's too painful to face. We need to let Jesus either raise it up or Jesus put it away. Whatever he wants to do with it. But the truth is you're not healed. The truth is it still has a powerful hold over your life and you need the comfort of God. How many of you this morning would just come to this altar to bring it to Jesus? Take Jesus to me. Just come right now. Come gather with me around this altar. And let us present our hearts and our lives and our brokenness to Jesus. And let us rejoice that he has conquered the grave. He has conquered your enemy. He has conquered your disease. He's conquered your sickness. He's conquered your confusion. Just bring it to him and he will comfort you. If you need the comfort of the Lord this morning, just bring it to him. Don't be religious and stand at a distance. Draw close to God. Draw close to Him right now. Come near to the Lord. His arms are open to you. He will not cast you away. He will not embarrass you. He knows you. He knows where where you are, what you become, what you are. But He knows how to redeem you. He knows how to redeem your family. He knows how to redeem your life. And he's the only one that can. Bless God, bless God, bless God. He's the only one that can. We're not kneeling to a dead God. We're kneeling to a God who is alive to help us. A God who can really comfort us. And if you believe he can comfort you, let him today. Let him. Please let him. And if you don't let him, then you cannot blame him. cannot lay an accusation at him. Not when he's here to help you. He's here to love you, forgive you, restore you.